Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, do you hear that? Hear what? Those monks over there. They're chanting. Why do they chant what's already been written and read and copied again and again? Don't they know these words like I know the back of my hand? It is not just a mnemonic endeavor, Hermit. It's also a faithful one. I see. So they do it because they have faith in those words. And perhaps also because those words have faith in us. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be backing out of the complicated doctrinal concepts, and instead we will be discussing the major schools of Buddhism. What are they called? Where are their, most of their practitioners located? We also discuss what they differ upon and what rituals they do. I hope you enjoy. So let's get started. What are the major schools of Buddhism in Asia? That's a good question. So first, let's define the scope of Asia that we're going to be working in. I'll be working with the definition that Asia includes everything on the Eurasian landmass to the east of Istanbul, excluding Russia. This definition of Asia is probably one of the more common ones, but it's not without its problems. However, it will situate us for the time being. In this region, there are three major schools of Buddhism. Those schools are Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, which all originated in India at or before the beginning of the Common Era, or the turn from BC to AD. Of these, Theravada is technically the oldest. Theravada was one of the Nikaya schools of India and Nepal. That means that it was one of the branches of thought from early non-sectarian eras of Buddhism. It's practiced now in the modern day in India and in Southeast Asia. Next, we have the Mahayana, which is the most popular form of Buddhism in East Asia. And finally, we have the Vajrayana, which is predominantly practiced in Tibet and Mongolia. Theravada is not practiced in Vietnam, even though the rest of Southeast Asia practices Theravada. One of the reasons for that is that China has exerted an enormous amount of cultural influence and historical and religious influence over Vietnam for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so the primary form of Buddhism that's practiced in Vietnam is actually Mahayana. Similarly, China, Korea, Japan, they all practice in the modern day, mostly Mahayana Buddhism. So how do these schools differ? There's too much to tell in one episode, but I will suffice to say that they emphasize different aspects of the Buddha's teachings, and that's reflected in their textual canons, their ritual traditions, their cultural productions, meaning their temples, their art, and their literature, and things like that. The Theravada path emphasizes the path of the arhat, or the renunciate. This is a path where a person gives up their daily life as a householder, and they go on to join a monastery or study and practice to attain enlightenment. They've collected their texts into the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is so called because that's the language that the texts are written in. It's kind of like how the Catholic Canon 
is in part written in Latin. Next is the Mahayana tradition, which emphasizes the path of the Bodhisattva. This is the path by which a person practices and studies to get to the doorstep of nirvana, but they stay back and try to rescue all sentient beings as well. So they're not only working to become enlightened themselves, but also to help all other sentient beings reach enlightenment. To facilitate this, they also emphasize another teaching that we haven't discussed yet, called upaya. This is a Sanskrit word that translates to skillful and expedient means. This teaching holds that the Buddha, being omniscient because of his enlightenment, knows exactly where each and every person he speaks to lies on their path to enlightenment. And therefore, he knows exactly what each individual person needs to hear to become enlightened as quickly as possible. Because everybody is at a different stage on this path, what might sound like nonsense to one person may be extremely enlightening and might be just what that person needed to hear to another. So this is what allows for an enormous textual tradition to take off in East Asia. This textual tradition is mostly collected in what is called the Taisho Canon, so named for the era in Japanese history when it was actually collected. Finally, we have the Vajrayana tradition. This school is very different from the other two. Vajrayana Buddhists produce a lot of mantras, or chants, mudras, or body poses, and mandalas, or images, which are meant to make the practitioner break down their illusion of possessing a self-other distinction from the Buddha, who is the object of their meditation. This tradition is the least familiar for me, it's not what I study the most, and being that it's influenced heavily by other religious traditions from India, Tibet, Nepal, it is extremely complicated to study the textual tradition. This tradition is where we find the Dalai Lama, which many people are familiar with as a sort of pope in Buddhism. However, he actually only officially represents the Vajrayana branch of Buddhism, and while he's well-studied in the canons of Buddhism and well-respected among all schools, he actually only represents the Vajrayana branch. Okay, so let's back up a little bit to talk some details about some of these. So, first of all, in Mahayana Buddhism, it emphasizes the path of the Bodhisattva. Is the Bodhisattva something, a concept, something that exists in the other two traditions as well? Yes, it does exist in the other two traditions, but they think of that path as either being maybe different or not being particularly enlightened, or they might think that it's not the way to attain nirvana. They might think that it's unnecessary. There, there's lots of different opinions about this path from people who are not Mahayana Buddhists, just like there are lots of opinions about the Theravada path or the Vajrayana path from Mahayana Buddhists. So this is kind of a complicated idea here. When it comes to the Bodhisattva path, this is where we see a more popular Buddhism come up. Mahayana Buddhism is Buddhism for people who do not necessarily have to or want to or have the ability to renounce their daily lives as householders. If we have compassion for all sentient beings and we strongly emphasize that, then there's not as much of a call to escape daily life, escape samsara, into a monastic lifestyle. However, that obviously means that there is not such a huge impetus to actually study as deeply and as rigorously 
as Theravada monks do if you're a common modern public Mahayana Buddhist, not necessarily part of the monk tradition of Mahayana Buddhism, but just a common everyday practitioner. So there's a lot of tension between primarily the Theravada and the Mahayana traditions over their opinions and their thoughts about each other's paths. So based on what I'm hearing and seeing, it seems like Theravada is a more solitary way to go about things, more emphasis on being in the monastic lifestyle. Absolutely, yes. And okay. once they go there, their goal is not to save anyone but themselves. I'd like right. to try to be as fair to both traditions as I possibly can, because I, I'm the most familiar with Mahayana, and I personally ascribe to Mahayana the most. But Theravada is very much a popular and valid and real path that a lot of people take. And I don't think that there is as much incongruity between the two canons and the two philosophies as perhaps a lot of modern practitioners might think. I simply think that they are choosing a separate path to get to the same destination. So with Vajrayana, uh, this is mostly in Tibet and Nepal. I actually have some familiarity with this from one of the books I read. Interesting. So the one of the books I read, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, is ostensibly Vajrayana. But again, that was good. First of all, I've recently found out that it was ghostwritten and the guy who it was ghostwritten for was an abusive person. But it's from what I have looked up afterward, it seems like what was in the book was more or less accurate question mark I, i'm not a great person to evaluate that seeing as it was one of my first experiences with buddhism period but i have heard a little of that and one thing that i have heard is that a lot of what's going on with vajrayana is being basically clamped down by the chinese government Absolutely. That There's a lot of social and political tension between the ecumenical structure, meaning the monastic and priestly structure of Vajrayana, and the Chinese communist government. Essentially, the Dalai Lama that most of us are familiar with, his name is Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama, he's not actually acknowledged or supported or even validated by the Chinese Communist Party. And they actually have their own Dalai Lama, who they say is actually the real Dalai Lama, the real holder of the position. And they kind of exist alongside each other. And it's complicated because this Dalai Lama that we have, Tenzin Gyatso, he was alive. He was very young, but he was alive during the Chinese conquest of Tibet. And so even though this Chinese equivalent is there, placed there by the government. Most people know and acknowledge Tenzin Gyatso, the Tibetan one. So there's a lot of complicated tension and change going on in their ecumenical structure because of these social and political issues that are surrounding Chinese occupation of Tibet, as well as the activities of the Communist Party and the Dalai Lama's status as more or less a political criminal in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party yeah. 
and in his past, even a prisoner at times of the Chinese government. So it's definitely worth study. And I hope that in the course of my graduate schooling that I become more familiar with it because not only is the tradition rich and full and interesting, but there's also a lot of a lot of interesting and important history to be learned about how Vajrayana functions in the modern day. All right. So let's move to the next subject, which is what kind of rituals do these traditions do? That's a very wide, large-scale question that I think that we could devote an entire podcast series to. But suffice to say, what is most common among all of these three schools is the production of holy imagery. So we've discussed mandalas on the part of the Vajrayana Buddhists, but uh, they also, the, the Mahayana Buddhists and the Theravada Buddhists also just create statues and pictures, other types of images of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas over time. Also common among all of them is copying or reciting holy texts. Which ones they copy and recite are different among traditions, but this is something they all seem to do. They have some belief that the text itself is holy, that the words themselves are holy, and that they will afford the copier or the reciter some sort of worldly here and now type of benefit. Another common aspect is meditation. They all seem to engage in some type of meditation. Meditation is one of the most interesting subjects in Buddhism, not only on a personal, everybody's daily life, mental health level, but also on theories of the mind and psychology of meditation and what the Buddhists actually say they're doing in meditation and how they differ from tradition to tradition with regards to it. And the last thing that's common to all of them is blessings or merit transfer rituals. So this merit transfer is essentially speaking to karma. This is kind of a common English vocabulary word in the study of Buddhism. An individual accrues enough good karma that they then do some sort of act of kindness or compassion to another person and transfer that good merit, that good karma, to the person who is the object of that ritual or to the group of people or the idea that is the object of that ritual and thus improve their lot in some way. So basically attempting to get other people closer to enlightenment with your own actions there? Absolutely, yes. Gotcha. These are the common ones, but there are countless unique aspects and differences among each school. Because there's 300 million self-identifying Buddhists in the world today, needless to say, how Buddhism is practiced and what rituals they do changes from person to person and varies incredibly widely. But when it comes to the East Asian ecumenical structures of Buddhism, I would say that these are the ones that are practiced the most. However, this is also really interesting because this is what the study of Buddhism on an academic level is pointing at nowadays. In the past, the study of Buddhism in a, in a Western academic setting pointed at what is the Buddha? What is the nature of enlightenment? What do these texts actually say? Etc., etc. When the study of Buddhism was young, these are the things we had to get out of the way. And of course, the study of Buddhism in the West is only about 150 years old or 170 years old. So now what it focuses more on is what are these rituals 
what are people doing and, and why? A little personal story about myself and my research this last academic year, I did my research on Japanese Buddhist ritual responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. I wanted to know what rituals were being done, how they were being done, and how they could be contextualized in the contemporary history of Japanese Buddhist disaster responses and temple structures. I couldn't go to Japan to actually carry out this research the right way, as I would have in a normal setting because of the pandemic. But what I did get to do was use Japanese social media, temple websites, and other internet means to get a sense for what's going on in Japan and what has been going on since the early months of 2020, when the pandemic first took off. I found that uh, many rituals that are performed for the sake of the community, including funerals, weddings, and these merit transfer ceremonies, are actually being streamed online for the larger community. And that means that if you can find these streams, then you can participate or at least watch these rituals from anywhere in the world. Now, they will be performed in Japanese, but it's an interesting way to get a look inside of a temple to see what they do and how they do it. I also found that when discussing the pandemic in social media settings or other public settings, it's being explained and being couched in terms of the doctrine of interdependence. We've spoken before about how the causes and conditions that cause us to arise cause all of us and everything in reality to arise. And thus, we are interdependent to each other because of emptiness and non-duality, like we've spoken of before. And this has been employed in a modern way, in a scientific way even, to encourage mask wearing and social distancing. They're saying things that because we depend on each other, because all human beings all sentient beings depend on each other for health and wellness and happiness and enlightenment, we have to wear masks and social distance and keep each other safe. That's something that has not previously been said of interdependence before. It's not a, it's a new context for this doctrine that's interesting to see. I think it's a wise context for it, though. I wish we had something like that going on here in the United States. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I'm also finding that many small rural temples out in the countryside have struggled in a very extreme way to catch up their online presence to this new disaster. There's been a lot of recent financial struggles and a lot of recent infrastructure struggles with regards to these countryside Japanese Buddhist temples and even the towns that, that they're actually located in, where they're struggling to support the temple and they're struggling to keep the doors open, and they're struggling to keep it online due to a huge variety of reasons. But it's interesting nonetheless to see what's going to happen in the future with these smaller temples. One would think that it would make sense that smaller temples are going to somehow fuse or associate themselves with larger ones just to keep the lights on, because those larger temples serve a larger community and thus have more money to, to pay the bills. However, we're not seeing that happen right now. And so it's going to be fascinating to look post-pandemic at Japanese Buddhist temple structures and Japanese Buddhist communities and see what happens, because we're seeing a change from the old to the new. The traditions, the structures, 
the rituals and the routines of the past, they've been stricken by this new pandemic and they're dealing with it in some novel ways. And I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this turns out for them in the future. For what it's worth, I have also seen some English speaking temples also moving a lot of their stuff online. So if you're an English speaker who's just looking for things about Buddhism online, you do have options for that as well. Resources for these streams and these online things will be posted in the show notes as part of the resources that we do for each episode. Join us next week where we will discuss what is the difference between becoming enlightened, becoming a bodhisattva, and becoming a Buddha. How can somebody do these three things? What do they have to do to do them? Thank you, and see you next time. Thank you very much. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Our email is bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Bright Buddhism. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.